I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. Crime and Stuff. And this is our 27th? 7th, yeah. Almost kind of like 28th, because I had to repost last week's, because there was a technical glitch. And by technical, there really was a technical glitch. That's not a euphemism for us fucking up. Yeah. It's possible some fuck up of mine caused. So anyway, there were like two versions of it out there. One with the technical glitch and one without. You can take your pick. Yeah. It's basically the same podcast. There's like 20 minutes where I'm actually... No, it's not 20 minutes. I mean, 20 seconds. seconds, I mean, where I'm actually talking over myself, which is uh, (laughs) quite an art. Yes. People complain we talk over each other, but boy, when I'm actually talking over myself, that's... Mm -hmm. So, so we have some updates. Yes, you do. Should I... Well, my update isn't really an update. It's a... It's It's another Uber thing. It's an enhancement. And I don't know if I'm going to be doing every Uber crime that no, happened because for god's sake what jeez well this happened in illinois this was by the daily news uber drivers dying words help illinois cops capture 16 year old girl accused in brutal machete knife murder wow so because there are such things i was gonna say because there's such thing as an unbrutal machete knife yeah, you know my thing with, yes, with adverbs and adjectives. Yeah. A mortally wounded Uber driver in Illinois pleaded, help me, help me, I'm going to die, after a teenage girl brutally attacked him with a stolen machete and knife, prosecutors say. Grant Nelson would die from his wounds following the attack in Lincolnwood early Tuesday morning, but was able to give a description of the attacker that led to the arrest of 16-year-old Eliza Wozney. Wozney was charged as an adult with first-degree murder and held without bond. He was not a vindictive person, Nelson's sister Alex told NBC in Chicago. He was not a cruel person. He didn't deserve this fate. Prosecutors said during a hearing on Wednesday that Wozni climbed into a car driven by Nelson shortly after 3 a.m. and stabbed him and hacked him to death. It was her third ride up in an Uber vehicle in the early morning hours. Now, she was also breaking the rules because she wasn't 18 and 16-year-olds aren't supposed to be riding. Right. She had stolen the weapons from a Walmart in Skokie after another Uber driver had taken her to the store, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. Nelson picked up the suspect a few blocks from Walmart, according to the newspaper. After Wozni began stabbing the 34-year-old Nelson from the back seat, he was able to pull over and ran to a nearby condo building where he screamed, Help me! Help me! I'm going to die! until residents called for help, according to prosecutors. Wozni climbed into the front seat and drove away, but struck a median. She fled on foot. When Lincolnwood officers arrived, they found the bloody scene and Nelson's phone open to the Uber app. The app said that Nelson's passenger was someone named Eliza. Officers would find Nelson lying in the grass after following the trail of blood. He was able to tell officers what had happened but passed away at a nearby hospital a few hours later. Police found Wozni nearby crouching behind an air conditioner with a machete in one hand and a knife in the other. An officer was forced to use a taser on her and she was taken into custody. What paper is that from? This is from the Daily News. Oh, yeah, okay. Wozni was portrayed as a calm girl who nonchalantly could be seen walking through Walmart with the weapons in hand before walking out without Actually, pain. Actually, she could be seen nonchalantly walking. Yes. She could nonchalantly. Well, maybe the person watching her was nonchalant, nonchalant too. Yeah. No reason was given for the attack. It is the first homicide in Lincolnwood since 2006, according to police. We are heartbroken by the loss of one of our partners, Uber said in a statement. Please don't sue us. No, they didn't say that. <laughs> our deepest sympathies and prayers are with his family 
and loved ones during this incredibly difficult time. So that's another scary one. It's like the one I told you it about is. last time with the guy just slashed the right. You can't for I, no reason. Right. You can't. There's nothing. And you can what do the about. hell is her reason? Now she, that was the third Uber. Uber now when you say evening. she was breaking the rules because she was 16, my feeling is no 16 year old is going to give a shit. I'm, I was no, joking. No, I know, I know, but let me... You know, it's just like on Facebook. You couldn't be on Facebook till you were 14 or something. Yeah, and there are, Maybe Uber should require people to... You know how drivers have to give all this documentation about... Well, maybe, maybe she had... What account was she using? Because yeah. it has to be so a, one named attached. Eliza. Yeah, but it has to be attached to a credit card and stuff. And most 16-year-olds don't But what I was going to say, maybe it should have to show ID or something. I don't know. Yeah. Then that would cut down on... A, anyway, it's not my problem. But Uber's. the sad thing is... When I was driving, the last person I would suspect, if I pick up a young woman by herself, I would not not be worried. And she looks, they have her picture, and she looks like a normal-looking girl. She's a pretty young girl. I mean, you, you, I mean, not that an ugly young girl, but you know what I mean. She, she didn't look like somebody that would do that. Well, and why? It just goes to show. She's a nutcase. It just goes to show. And I'm sure the guy thought, oh, this young girl, why is she out at 3 a.m.? And also, you know what? Walmart's being open 24 hours. That's where, or any 24-hour store that has stuff that you can use as weapons, that's where the freaking criminals yeah, always I've never, go. When you does anyone line, who has a machete ever not do something like that well why will you well she didn't buy it though i mean she stole it she walked out oh, yeah. with it so no but not i'm like, not saying i know i'm not saying whether she buy it, bought it or stole it or whatever but i guess you I would c- use it if for hunting and stuff yeah, like I if g- you're gutting an animal i don't know uh, what you use <laughs> i think it you use a hunting knife or, or to cut anyways. down tall grass or whatever and the other thing that i wanted to say is which i wasn't going to go into very much but, but i was very happy to see a story today that connecticut now has court appointed representatives for abused animals i'm happy about i don't that know too. what they do but I, I wish they would have that in main because i'd volunteer for that i would too anyways okay so you've got some updates i do there are two. Our last episode, I mentioned that Todd Kolhep was in court that morning. And that was episode two that, <laughs> that we took. Yeah, but the episode I mentioned it in that yes, he was in was court last, was last time, episode 26. And I finally looked to see what happened. And he pleaded guilty to seven charges. If That was episode two. He's the guy in South Carolina, the nutty realtor who had killed four people in a motorcycle shop years before. Killed a couple killed the boyfriend of a woman who he then locked in a container in uh. his yard. And you can listen to all the details on our very thorough episode too. But he pleaded guilty on May 25th. He got seven life sentence terms plus 60 years on kidnapping, sexual assault, and other charges. He won't be eligible for parole, and he agreed not to appeal. My guess huh. is he pleaded guilty to avoid the... Um, you know, being executed. Yeah, probably. The other update is to Ayla Reynolds, our Aww. episode three, the 20-month-old who disappeared from her father's house in Waterville, Maine in December of 2011 and hasn't been seen since. And a judge is going to hear the mother's request that she be declared dead. And that hearing is in September and it's basically a formality. She's obviously not alive. It's basically a formality so that the mother can then file a civil suit against Ayla's father, Justin DiPietro, who now reportedly lives in California. Oh, he does. Where he can get away from the prying eyes of Maine, where he's the, no one's been charged in that, but he's a suspect in her death. 
and they... I wish somebody would just talk about it. Well, that's the only way that anything's going to happen. Either that or somebody finds her remains and there's, like, some evidence of... Uh, the only thing in the house is not really evidence. It's that they found some blood. It's unclear how much that's been determined to be hers. And like, Dad was asking me, well, can't they charge him? No, because you can have blood in your house, and it could be from anything. You can't yeah, a blood anything. doesn't Right, blood. And people can say, well, a little girl, blah, blah. You can say whatever you, you want. You can say what you want, but the other thing is, and you can go to court with that, and then it, he gets acquitted. And yes. then you find out that he which, did it. Which the Morning Sentinel, actually, in Waterville, Waterville's paper, actually did a story about maybe a year and a half ago because Trista, the mother, had petitioned the, I think it was Kennebec County District Attorney, to, like, she'd submitted a petition to file charges. First of all, the um, district attorney wasn't the one handling the case. It's in the main AG's office. But second of all, they did a story. Basically, you they would charge somebody if there was evidence. You don't want to bring somebody to trial. Charge them for murder. Have them acquitted because there's not enough evidence. The fact that, quote-unquote, everyone thinks he did it isn't evidence. And we did, we <laughs> discussed that we discussed more it. at length in episode three. Right, we had, right, we did. And With We ben. had Ben McKenna, who was the reporter at the Morning Sentinel, who covered most of it at the time. So that's a good episode, and that's what's going on, and we'll update you in September with what happens with that and what happens next if nothing happens in between then and did we have anything else we needed to talk about i don't think so not right now so i can go into my story this week yes you can i'm I'm very excited i suggested most suggested well i I always read this day in history in the newspaper and it was a this day in history thing and i texted you and said oh you should do this yes and i i didn't really want to because the last one i did was a celebrity a murder. Phil Spector. And this is also a Phil. Phil Hartman. So, but I decided to, it's something that people don't talk much about and it is a very interesting It's case. very interesting and it's different. Yes. So I'm going to tell you about the murder-suicide of Phil Hartman and Bryn Amdahl Hartman. On early May 28, 1998, Bryn Hartman shot her husband three times as he lay in bed. Later that morning at about 6.30, she got into bed next to him and put a gun in her mouth and shot and killed herself. The Hartmans had two children who were in the house at the time of the first shooting, though they were unaware of what was happening. Nine-year-old son Sean had already been taken out of the house, and six-year-old Bergen was being brought out by the police when the single gunshot that killed their mother was heard. So Bryn had locked herself in the bedroom as a friend called police to report Phil dead. Initial reports said that a 911 call came in from neighbors saying they heard gunshots, but that is not what happened. Ooh. The only person besides Bryn, the shooter, that seemed to hear the shots that killed Phil was Sean, who later told police it sounded like a door had been slammed several times. He didn't know it was gunshots. It was in the middle of the night. Right. Anyway, I'll get to He was probably used to mommy and daddy fight. Oh, yes. I'll get to the details later. Okay. Most of our listeners probably have heard of Phil Hartman, but if not, let me remind you, Phil was best known for being a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live from 1986 to 1992 and for doing a lot of voices on The Simpsons. He was one of the funniest guys on Saturday Night Live. Most notably, Troy McClure, (laughs) where he always said, you might remember me from, and then he'd name some stupid movie, like the son of Sanford and Son or something. (laughs) A biography came out in 2014 with the title, You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman, by Mike Thomas. Hartman once said that the McClure fans were his favorite fans. And... I did not read the book, full disclosure. Uh, I did read some excerpts of it. I wasn't a fan of the writing style. Why? What was the writing style like? He just overwrote. I don't know. He used words that weren't necessary. Yeah, I hate that. Like, instead of saying, 
book, he'd say tome or something. Oh, I mean, I that's that not, shit. that's just Like when example. people say exit instead of leave. I read a lot of bad writing yeah. and that's a big thing. He was also in many movies. I didn't realize how many, but a lot of them were bit parts and stuff. Until the years before his death, he was more of a star. I think the biggest starring role he, he you'd know him from would be Jingle All the Way. He was usually more of a character actor or a supporting player, which seemed to suit him just fine. He said, if you are the second or third lead in the show or movie bombs, you aren't to blame. And he made a pretty good career yeah. out of it. I just want to say, he was one of the... F- I remember him, and I there were huge, huge swatches of years I haven't watched Saturday yes. Night Live. I started watching in 75 when it started. But, yeah. but he's one of the funniest people he was. I ever watched. On- and I gained a new, a new appreciation of him because he's easy to... F- to discount because he got stuck and I'll go into this more his role in the show but he got stuck doing stuff he was the one you know he did the impressions and he didn't have a big bombastic like Chris Farley type thing I hated Chris Farley yeah he was extremely talented you forget you know I loved the Frankenstein Tonto (laughs) and who was the third one oh I don't know Frankenstein Tonto and there's like he was a very versatile comedian a good mimic and great at voices his looks were pleasant but not necessarily out of the ordinary which made it easier for him to take on a lot of roles and change character believably on saturday night live he did impersonations of reagan clinton trump but i always liked the ones he invented like the anal retentive chef and the, un- oh, yeah. the yeah. unfrozen caveman lawyer. Oh, I forgot about I got the SNL it app was, just it so was I could watch Frankenstein, stuff. Tonto, and Tarzan. Oh, and Tarzan. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the problem, too, is, and you may be about to say this, is he was overshadowed by yes. some, Not, I mean, not just the bombastic Chris Farley, but people, it wasn't Dana Carvey on yes. at the same yes, time. Yes, I talk and, about that. Oh, okay. His frequent partner on SNL, which is Saturday Night Live. I'm going to refer to it as SNL. Okay, yeah, fewer syllables. Was the late Jan Hooks, who is also extremely talented. Wow, lots of dead SNL she people. Died, did she die of cancer? Yeah. She, oh, the women sad. all died of cancer, the men all died of drugs and yes. getting shot and stuff. Who nicknamed him the glue because he held everyone together. In one article, the interpretation, well, a couple things I read, was that it was because he was so steady and strong and was like a big brother to the cast, which I'm sure is true. True, but I also think that artistically he was the glue. He would play all the supporting roles to the bigger stars like John Lovitz or Dana Carvey, who had higher profiles, and later Adam Sandler and Chris Farley. Mm-hmm. Without him to hold scenes together, nothing would have worked. That's true. He was definitely one of the most talented performers to come out of the show in the vein of Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd in that he could play many different characters in a believable way. Julia Sweeney, who joined the show later in Hartman's tenure, said he was one of the few she remained close to after leaving the show. And I want to say, too, on Saturday Night Live, one of my big criticisms of it, particularly after the first maybe six or seven years, was they'd have an idea for a sketch and you'd watch it and you could see, okay, here's their idea and it would just fall flat. Yeah, and because it, still it wasn't does developed. Sometimes. Yes, and I don't watch it that much anymore. No, I hardly ever watch but it. But I found that a lot of Phil Hartman sketches actually were going somewhere. Yes. And, were and funny. he was a writer as well. And it, I'll get into okay. how he got on the show. Because All right. it was important. Okay. At the time of his death, the fourth season of the ensemble show News Radio had just wrapped up. I like that. He played Bill McNeil, a vain newsreader. Reviewer Ken Tucker said, quote, A lesser performer would have played him as a variation on the Mary Tyler Moore show's Ted Baxter mm-hmm. because that's what Bill was in, on paper. But Hartman gave in 
infinite variety to Bill's self-centeredness, turning him devious, cowardly, squeamish, and foolishly bold from week to week, end quote. Hartman himself said that he based his portrayal of Bill McNeil on himself with any ethics or character removed. And it may have been one of those jokes that isn't really a joke, if you know what I mean. Yes. Because part of that self-centeredness and cowardice, which might be too strong a word, but the inability to deal with issues is what set up the circumstances oh, that led to his murder. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so let me talk about him in more detail. Philip Edward Hartman, which it used to have two N's at the end, and his brother still does oh, spell it Oh, like Mary Hartman, way. Mary Hartman. Yes. Was born on September 24th, 1940 in Brantford, Ontario. He was the fourth child in a family in Ontario, yes. Canadian. No, I was just going to say, ooh, Canadian, yeah. Yes. Okay. He was the fourth child in a family of eight children, Catholic family, of course. Mm -hmm. I read in several places that he did not get much attention as a child, so he sought it elsewhere. Nobody fucking does in a family of eight kids. I know. Newsflash. And he was was the fourth, so. You fertile Catholics. One of the things I watched. And I can say that because we are, any family where you have a a huge amount of kids, you're going to have people who didn't get enough attention. Probably all. And it comes out in all sorts of ways. Yes. I watched a lot of stuff. That's why YouTube. we podcast. One of the things I watched <laughs> was a spot he did on the Letterman show in 1994 when the movie Greedy, which wasn't that good a movie, came out. And he said something about not getting a lot of love as a child, so he tried to get it by being in show business. It got a laugh, but he didn't seem like he was joking to no. me. Maybe he was speaking to me. Yeah. And, you know, on that show, he was he came out, he was kind of doing it a bit, but he was, after they spoke for a while, he really started, it's a long uh, like eight minute interview and he really seemed like a nice person yeah, in i'm person. sure he was he told people magazine in 1993 that as a child he didn't make any waves and as an adult he still had quote a passive people-pleasing middle child mentality <laughs> just like you yeah yeah did you say he was the fourth of eight yes yeah i'm passive and people and i would add that kind of person why can't i say personality Maybe because you don't have any. (laughs) (laughs) Also can come from having a parent with substance abuse issues, Mm. keeping secrets, keeping things in. Oh, yeah, definitely. So he moved to the United States with his family in 1958, first to Connecticut and later to Southern California. There's always a Connecticut The Los Angeles. I know. I thought that too, the Los Angeles area. When he was a kid, he apparently loved Jonathan Winters and would do his bits for friends. According to the New York Post, he would imitate his often, quote, stumbling drunk father. (laughs) to his family's delight end quote and I'm a bit skeptical about the family delight thing I I am too not that we speak from experience well I I don't think imitating my stumbling drunk father would delight many people unless they all had such angry resentment that they had this Macabre. Yeah, that could be too. Humor about nothing. Okay, so adult children of alcoholics are very complicated people. You know who had a good book about that? Louis um, Armstrong. Is that his name? (laughs) Louis (laughs) Louis Anderson. I knew it was an A. (laughs) Yes. And Suzanne Somers. Do you remember? She had one that was pretty good in the uh, 90s. Okay. Come on, open the door. So, fun fact. Oh, about right. I love Hartman. fun facts. According to the LA Times, while Phil was a student at Orville Wright Junior High. <laughs> that sounds made up. He had an interest in drama and was in some school plays. Wait, they were in California? Yeah. But there was an Orville Wright Junior High? Hey, I don't name the Junior High. Why did they name it after Orville instead of Wilbur? They Walt Whitman one and... They were from... The Wright brothers were from Ohio. I know. I'm sorry. I I did not name the Junior High. Okay, I'm just saying. And you're ruining my fun fact. I'm sorry. 
Uh, now you're not that even... That not fun anymore. And that wasn't even the point of the fun Sorry. fact. Sorry. He had an interest in drama and was in some school plays. He shared the stage with none other than Lynette Squeaky Frome. Oh, Manson Former girl. member of the Manson clan who was serving a life sentence for the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford. Yeah, I love that. I that is a like fun that fact. fact. I, do, I like that a lot. Phil's first love was the visual arts. He entered Santa Monica City College to study art, but dropped out in 1969. His brother John, who kept the two ends at the end of his name, had been managing rock bands and hired Phil as a roadie. Phil enjoyed the lifestyle and being among all the rock stars and groupies, probably. He moved into a cabana behind his brother's house. It's like an L.A. thing. I know, Ooh, cabana. And started hanging out with and smoking pot in the hot tub with neighbor Larry Hagman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Janie. Janie. Didn't they have on Saturday Night Live a sketch where he or somebody played a roadie where they come up on stage and like him frantically? Maybe or... because he, that's what he did. Oh, wow. Okay. In fact, I, one of the things I read was about him doing some band. I can't remember. It had the word foo in it. Not Foo Fighters. It was way before then. But Jimi Hendrix was friends with them and he was jamming and Phil was the roadie for that. So he yeah. met a lot of famous I'm people. I'm picturing a, just a sketch where the roadie is like doing yes, all this stuff. Yes, there was stuff. one. Yeah. It, you can download can the FNL. It's an app. I think I will. I have it. I will. So he met his first wife, Gretchen Lewis, on the beach. He was 20 and she was 19. Mm. They shared a strong sexual chemistry. About That's yeah, about all. It wasn't when they're 19 I know, and, and married in 1970, but were divorced by 1972. After his divorce, he returned to school, attending California State University, Northridge, and studying graphic design. He opened his own graphic design business in the 70s and got quite a bit of work from his brother, John, the rock band manager. He designed the commercial logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which I looked up. I, I, didn't, I didn't recognize it, but apparently it was on all their all their merchandise and over 40 album covers wow and if you owned any albums from the 70s you would recognize his work if you look up since you're online google phil hartman record covers the cover art of steely dan's asia and i just want to point out although you were probably going to is that with with vinyl records album cover art was a big thing it was a big deal i mean you had this 10 inch square thing and it was. The cover Stilly Dan's Asia, Poco album. There's like a horse yeah, with I can like lines. It's like my college's college. And there's a, America's Greatest Hits, which everyone used to have. Yeah. I think that has like a montage of their heads and stuff. It's a drawing. Oh, yeah, I remember that. In 1970, he was on the dating game. I saw, found that on YouTube. Oh, wow. And the announcer said he'd been on dozens of commercials as a voiceover act. And he made the best avocado sandwich. According to Wikipedia, he won, but his date stood him up because it didn't show uh, that his, whether he won or not. Just like See, that, like that just like serial album. killer. Um, oh yeah, that serial killer, that photographer guy. Right. He was creepy. Yeah. So he kept himself very busy. He but he worked alone and wanted a creative outlet for his love of performing. So in 1975, he started taking classes at the improvisational group The Groundlings. He eventually joined the group as an actor. According to fellow Groundlie Edie McClurg who was on a lot of shit in the 80s, and she always had like a Midwestern accent. Mm -hmm. And she was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was a flirt who liked to, in her words, grab my tit. She thought it was funny. It was oh, a, is it? it? Was yeah, a, that was, it was the 70s. 70s. Yeah, that's back when it was funny. She when said, your tits and stuff. quote, he was a horny guy, but not in a dirty way. He really appreciated women. <laughs> John Lovitz, also a former SNL star. I, I love John Lovitz. 
was a groundling with Hartman and idolized his talent, calling him King of the Groundlings. <laughs> I, I, I picture it in that voice, King of the Like acting. He would do any voice. Oh, this is a quote from John Lovitz. He would do any voice, play any character, make his face look different without makeup. End quote. Paul Rubens was also a groundling, and he and Phil developed Pee-wee. the character of Pee Wee Herman. Ah. In 1983, he married again. His second wife was Lisa Strain, a real estate agent. This marriage only lasted about two years as well. Lisa, in a 1998 People magazine article, said, quote, He would disappear emotionally. Phil's body would be there, but he'd be in his own world. That passivity made you crazy. And he, when I'd protest, he'd say, You're getting in the way of my career. This hmm. is who I am and what it's going to be like. Wow. End quote. Shortly after the end of his second marriage... I wouldn't do well with that. No. In 1985, he met Bryn Omdahl at a party. I will get into more detail about her later. But right now, I'll say that she had a history of alcohol and cocaine addiction, and although she was sober at the time he met her. According to the biography by Mike Thomas, this was a vulnerable time for Phil. His acting comedy career wasn't really going anywhere. It was kind of stalled. He, he was still making a living at it. He did still did tons was, of voiceovers in 1985. Yeah. His marriage it had ended. So, yeah, why not just jump into another serious relationship? Yeah, the, I don't understand these people who get married They over don't want to be alone. I guess. That summer, the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure came out. Hartman had helped to write the movie, and it was a big success. Paul Rubens hosted Saturday Night Live as Pee-wee, in the character of Pee-wee. Mm-hmm. And Hartman was hired ad hoc to write, help write material for that episode, along with one of the other writers, which I guess I should name, but I forgot to write it. Uh-huh. Here, so. Lauren Michaels was impressed with Hartman, who ended up auditioning and being hired by the show as a writer and a performer. And his audition tape is on YouTube. As you can tell he's fairly talented. The cast at that time already had Dennis Miller, Nora Dunn, and John Levitt. The other new hires were Jan Hooks, that season, 85, 86, I guess. Jan Hooks, Dana Carvey, Victoria Jackson, who I never thought was talented. No. Kevin Nealon, who sometimes is funny. Sometimes. The other writers at that time inclu- included Al Franken, who's now a senator, oh, yeah. and I Jack used- Handy. And that was a pretty funny time in yeah. the show's history. Those seasons were pretty good. I think that's the last the time late I, 80, mid to late I regularly 80s. watched yeah. it. Was. And I got the SNL app, as I said, so I could watch now I do too. stuff. His Trump isn't really that good. He did a lot of Donald and Ivana. But his Clinton and Phil Donahue, although yeah. a lot of our younger listeners well, no, have no Phil. idea who Phil Donahue... Married to Marlo Thomas. And Peter Graves again. It's, it's That's a timely one. So yeah. His made-up characters are the funniest to me. His work wife, in quotes, was Jan Hooks. They played a lot of couples together, Donald and Ivana. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, who I was thinking of doing one of our sh- episodes on Jim and Tammy Faye, because that was an interesting whole yes. crime thing. Yeah, when they always had the makeup. She always she had, the had that makeup on. Bill and Hillary. Hooks said Hartman helped her overcome her stage fright and was a steadying influence, which is why she gave him the name The Glue. When he made the writer's stuff sound good at the table reads, they would all start chanting, the glue, the glue, the glue. Uh, and Jay Moore like to work. gave attributed Adam Sandler, he said he gave him that nickname, but the Jan, uh, everything else I read said Jan Hook. So Jay Moore, you're full of shit. I don't even remember. I guess he, was, he wasn't on very long. Jay Moore, he was on like one season, I think. In 1990, Hartman started doing the voices for The Simpsons. He also got a lot of voiceover work in small parts in movies. And even though he was a vegetarian, he did a commercial for McDonald's that paid $1.2 million. Wow. And he did a Coke commercial for 600000 that was that actually never aired. 
So he was getting, you know, he's working his way up. Meanwhile, Hartman had married Bryn in 1987 while she was pregnant with their son, Sean. When Sean was born in 1988, Lisa Strain, Phil's ex-wife, sent a congratulatory card wishing Sean a happy life and more siblings. Bryn sent back a four-page hate-filled letter, according to Strain it was hate-filled, which mm. probably was. She warned Strain to never come near her husband or she'd rip her eyes out. Wow. Strain was alarmed by the diatribe and called Phil. Uh-huh. He said he had seen the first draft and it was worse than this one. Wow. <laughs> he said he was partially to blame because Bryn had asked him if he and Lisa were soulmates and he said yes. Well, who asked somebody that? And who says yes to your fucking wife? <laughs> yeah, my second wife was my soulmate. Well, soulmate is a stupid fucked up thing, as another Phil, Dr. Phil, would tell you. Strain was stunned that he knew about the letter and hadn't done anything about it or warned her. So she hung up and didn't speak to him for two years, and she had been friendly with him. Yeah, I don't blame her. Three years later... There she was doing a nice thing, making Um, a nice gesture. Fucking wife is nutty. Three years later, the Hartmans had a daughter, Bergen. At this time, they were living in New York. They were in 1987, too, but while Phil was on SNL. By the end of his tenure on the show, Phil was getting tired of it. He felt like he was not appreciated by fans because he didn't have characters with a, with well-known catchphrases. Huh. He didn't like the live audience telling one interviewer they should get real people instead of quote, elitist friends of the staff who sit and observe the show rather than get involved, Mm. end quote. He also disliked the increasingly sophomoric humor of Adam Sandler and Chris Farley. Yes. Although he did mentor Chris Farley. Huh. Well, I always follow Chris Farley. His whole gig was, oh, look at me, I'm fat. Look at me, I'm fat. Sometimes he was funny, but I think he relied too much on... Yeah, and like, people will compare him to Belushi, and it's like no, he was or he John Candy, versatile and he was n- n- not nowhere near. His whole shtick was look he at me. He was I'm very fat. manic and me, sweaty and fat. fat. Yeah. While Hartman was on SNL, his marriage was on rocky ground, although I would say from the beginning. Yeah. As you can tell from the letter, Bryn wrote his ex-wife, that was only, they'd only been married like a year. Bryn was unhappy and I think bored. Mm. She took acting lessons and stuff, but didn't do much else. Did she, did she have a career before that? Oh, we'll get into that. She picked fights with Phil all the time, especially right before SNL dress rehearsals. Mm. She accused him of having affairs, which by most accounts seemed untrue. A friend of Bryn later said, There were rumors, but you could see how he used to look at her. You could tell he loved her. Mm. After he ended his stint on SNL, the family moved back to L.A. Phil was happy to be back in California, and I'm not really sure about Bryn. Who knows? Mm. So let's talk about Bryn. Yeah. Bryn was born Vicki Omdahl on April 11th, 1958 in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. Her father was an engineer and her mother ran a retail store. She was an average student and dropped out of high school to get married to Douglas Torfin, a telephone operator. She was only married a couple of years before divorcing and moving to Minneapolis to do some modeling work. She was tall and blonde Mm -hmm. and beautiful. She Mm. ended up moving to California to take acting lessons and try to get into acting. She never seemed comfortable with being herself or even knowing who herself was. She changed her name to Vicky Joe, then Brynden, and finally Bryn. Mm. She was working as a swimsuit model for Catalina when she met Phil Hartman. Some places I read said a party and other places said a blind date. 
So whatever. Could have uh, been both. In any case, there are several quotes that talk about how pretty she was. A friend said, quote, he never had a babe before and she was it for him. He married his dream girl, end quote. And there are other indications that he loved her for her looks. I didn't see much to show me that he loved her personality or humor or intelligence or anything like that. It didn't sound like Which is did. very sad to me. I know. And maybe he did, but no one seemed to ever write about it or, yeah. you know, so maybe that was part of their problem. Mm-hmm. Marrying a famous person, especially an actor, didn't help her identity issues. She had plastic surgery several times trying to improve, I put in quotes, air quotes, her looks when she was already beautiful, so WTF. According to People magazine, their New York nanny had said, some of the surgery was Phil's idea, which if so, what a D-bag, I wrote. Yeah. The nanny said he wanted Bryn's chin to be more square. Which like what the fuck? I was gonna think you know boob, boob job, job. I know. Or you know she me. looks like she didn't really. She doesn't look boob jobby to me, but she does. <laughs> he wanted her. I know. Isn't that weird? Yeah. If it's true. And you can tell by looking at pictures of her that she had. She did have facial surgery. Yeah. And well, it's maybe sad she had that body amorpha thing. Well, she yeah. When they lived in New York, she felt secluded and cut off and lonely. She got attention by acting out, flirting with his castmates, starting screaming matches, like I said, before the rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And this this was a theme throughout their marriage. She sounds like child, like a child. Yeah. When they moved back to California, Bryn bought guns because, as she told a friend, she was in the house alone a lot with her children. Mm. And Phil worked long hours. Phil had always liked guns and had a collection since before he married Bryn. Hartman's ex-wife, Lisa, says that Phil had told her he wanted to do anything he could to make the marriage work, but said Bryn would create scenes and throw fits. Maybe she needed to get a job or something. I know, that's what I think. Phil's divorce lawyer said Phil once told him, quote, I go into my cave and she throws grenades to get me out, end quote. Yeah, a week before he was killed, he told a friend that, quote, this is the one that's for real. The crazy years were behind them. Hmm. And this w- marriage was, quote, as good as it's ever been, which doesn't really mean maybe, anything. Yeah. <laughs> maybe as good he as meant, been. by crazy years, he meant just their life being upheaval. He didn't yeah. mean that she was no longer going to be yeah. crazy. But uh. Bryn was frustrated with the loneliness and I think boredom, as I said, of life. I don't think she really had anything. She had her two kids. But other than that... She sounds bored. I, I mean, mean she, aside from any craziness that may she, have made her get plastic surgery and stuff. It, I mean, being a mother is great and everything, but you have to have more than that. You've got to... She, right. I, you know, I don't, it doesn't, I don't see any indication that she yeah. had much else yeah. to do. Take up scrapbooking or something. So she started drinking and doing coke again. Or that. And I read somewhere that Andy Dick, who was on <laughs> news radio with Phil, and he, he was the pretty funny. named Andy Dick. Was blamed for turning her on to coke again. And he said he didn't know that she had a problem with it. So my take is that they probably did do coke together, but you can't blame him no, or any other person for her to right. do, you know, getting... And again, we only get a little tiny bit of the information on what was going on. Hartman Hartman apparently commiserated with news radio castmate Vicki Lewis, who was living with Nick Nolte, notorious drug abuser. Mm. Neither of them knew what to do. And Vicki Lewis is the red-haired... I don't know if seen him in too too much besides that since then. She was a petite red-haired woman. Phil liked to buy cars and boats, and he bought a plane. He would take off from his family with friends to unwind. Mm. His passivity passivity yeah and pot smoking which i'm sure fed off each other <laughs> yeah, yeah 
drove Bryn nuts and was frustrating for her. She felt alone and so alienated she's a manic, from him. She's a manic cokehead. He's a passive pothead. Yes. Not a good combination. And the more alienated she felt, the more she would abuse coke and booze. They tried marriage counseling, but he would often blow off their sessions. Mm. Bryn's friends said that she wanted out of the marriage, but Phil wouldn't let her. But his friends say it was he who wanted out. About a year before the incident that ended both their lives, Bryn showed up wasted on Mother's Day, 1997. Phil told her that she had to go to rehab. What, she showed up at home? Yes. Yeah. She did, but left after a few days because she missed her kids. Mm. At the time, according to the Daily News, he told his mother that he was, quote, out of my mind with worry. And if she did it again, he would take the kids and leave. She apparently tried rehab several times that year, obviously without success. She had also been prescribed Zoloft, an antidepressant. At the time of the murder-suicide, Zoloft was cited as a factor in her behavior. Hmm. Some studies had said it can cause violent behavior combined with other drugs or alcohol. Now, I have been on Zoloft for years, since the 90s, off and on. Although I've never killed anyone or myself, so I can't say. But still... It wasn't for lack of trying. (laughs) Not yourself, but the other people. In 1999, Phil's family filed a wrongful death suit against Pfizer, the maker of Zoloft, and they settled with him. So maybe Mm, I should... So maybe there is... You know, yeah, I don't know. Her nutty behavior. Well, well, the problem is if you're mixing it with all sorts of other shit. Who the hell knows? I know. You know, her nutty behavior. I mean, pick a drug. I know. Just pick one. Well, it's not like Zoloft makes you high anyway. No, I know. It obviously wasn't helping her with her problems. But problem. it does something to your it, your chemical. No, it, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying wiring. that. Like, if your goal is to get high, it's why right. bother taking it. Right. You know, I'd rather do coke. If I had to choose and wanted to get high, I'd t- right. do coke. I, what if I'm that just makes saying any is, sense. Yes, I'm just saying yes, pick but, a drug. Yeah. You know, pick one. Her nutty behavior caused the housekeeper to quit 10 days before the incident of the Mm. killing, according to an acquaintance. And yet, others who knew her and Phil said that they seemed happy and fine around that time. (laughs) But she definitely was abusing drugs and alcohol again, and we all know that your behavior behavior can change on a dime when you're doing that. And you also wonder, people who say, oh, they were fine, like, they weren't there all the time. And people's perceptions... Oh, I'm sure they're in, you know... You put on a public face. Mm-hmm. Bryn often tried to engage Phil at bedtime, usually by arguing or, should I say, yelling at him. Hmm. And a lot of times he would either go to sleep or pretend to sleep just to avoid the situation. Wow, what a great marriage. That now, like so I can fun. empathize with Bryn on this, having had several relationships with passive-aggressive people. The fact of ignoring someone or pretending not to hear them can be infuriating mm-hmm. when you are worked up and angry. Granted, she was whipping herself up into a frenzy. And drugs didn't help. When she first shot him, and that was kind of, maybe it's because of things like that. I remember that part of the narrative. I remember saying, thinking to myself, I could see how you would shoot somebody because there's nothing more irritating than being ignored yes. or getting the silent treatment upset. from someone when you're upset. And, she, and drugs didn't help. If they had actually stuck to counseling, it might have helped their relationship well, quite a bit. Well, both people have to but want to bo- do it. Hey, I, oh, that's sorry. what I'm saying. Both people have to want to change. And a lot of times people don't like what they find out when they go to couples no. counseling. I'm sure outwardly she seemed like the troubled one. She seemed like the person who needed help, and she clearly did, but so did he. As his friend and lawyer, Stephen Small, who handled both his divorces, Mm. said, quote, It was a pleasure to see how Phil interacted with people, and yet I have a feeling Bryn got none of that. Yeah. The eve of the murder, and you know, before I get into the eve of the murder, I want to just add my own personal. There are people who, when they're in a superficial 
exchange with other people or even a superficial relationship, mm-hmm. someone you work with or someone you're friends with, not in a deep relationship, romantic, right. that can seem like the nicest person in the world. But Charming. when you have to be at home with somebody else all the time, mm-hmm. that's when you're the real self. And if you're the type of person that doesn't want to be around people, you want to sit around and smoke pot, you don't want a nagging person around you. Or if you're the person who wants somebody very... to engage with. No, I'm saying that's his, right. uh, her, you know, you want to engage. You want to talk to somebody about your issues. Or you at least just want to spend time with someone. You're supposedly in love with each other and have children together. And you want to do stuff together. And this person just wants to go off on his boat with his other friends and get right. high. I mean, yes. both of them, it was a bad combination. Yes. And to, just to add to that, too, with that type of the type of person that he was is you can be just as fucking crazy, but people who know you in a much more superficial way say, oh, he's the calm, placid yes. one. He's the nice guy. He's the this, oh, he's he the that. up with her, yeah. And they don't understand that being the placid, nice guy can, can hide a whole lot of fucking crazy. And if you're the person who has to live with that person, it's equally frustrating. It adds to the frustration that you know you're perceived as the crazy one. Not that she yes. wasn't one of the crazy... Because you're more vocal, you're more emotional, you're not a player. You know, I think it's you're a, not hiding... With her, too, it's a vicious cycle. It's yes. like, everyone thinks I'm idiot, drunk, you know, cokehead, and they think he's great. And she had low self-esteem, obviously, as it was. She didn't have... She had problems... Like I said, she didn't even know herself, and she yes, didn't have which any. Is sad. I don't think she had any self identity. Identity, yeah. I know, and I, I just feel like. But ugh. the other thing is, women are judged much more harshly for oh, yeah. for doing drugs and acting crazy and partying and being emotionally out there and stuff. You know, people look back at yeah, well, say Chris, Chris Farley, Farley, yeah, and John Belushi and people like that with fondness or respect or whatever when they were out there being fucking messes but if a woman is out there being a mess is it's embarrassing yeah people judge her and women act different women's voices sound different women Hmm. have different emotional type things and theirs aren't considered funny or admirable or cool or whatever the fuck people thought about belushi and chris farley when they were acting like that in public yeah. So anyway, so anyways, so the eve of the murder, mm. preceding evening, Bryn met her friend Christine Zander, who was a producer for the show Third Rock from the Sun. Remember oh yeah, that I show? love Third Rock Jan Hooks was in that yeah. at a bistro called Buca di Beppo. I think that's how mm. it's pronounced. For drinks, they were there for two hours talking. Bryn nursed two Cosmopolitans, which, if you want to know what those are, vodka, triple second cranberry juice. Mm, yeah, they drink them a lot on Sex in the City. According to People Magazine, there's two different takes on this evening. According okay. to People Magazine, Xander says they didn't talk about any problems, they just talked and made plans to meet the next week. The Daily News take is this. So she nursed two Cosmopolitans, mm-hmm. right? This is what the Daily News says. On the evening of May 27, 1998, Bryn met a friend for drinks discussing her career disappointments while downing two Cosmos and half a beer. If they were there for two hours, I know. If they were there for two hours, two Cosmos and half a beer is <laughs> not. That <laughs> it's just funny. The information is like the the facts are the same, but just the right way. the way it's portrayed. But her the pe- career disappointment. The people 
information was right after the incident. Yeah, um, and, and the Daily News was coming from the bio that it, that guy wrote. So and that the guy wrote, and you wonder what his sources were. And also, it's funny. It reminds me of Lana Clarkson and your Phil Spector. Yes, thing. I was thinking of Lana Her Clarkson. Career disappointments, know. you know. So Julia Sweeney, who was a castmate of Phil's, like I said, on SNL, and was still friends with him, in an interview with Salon.com, said that she realized that she had spent Thanksgiving Day, Easter, and Fourth of July at the Hartman's home. She was also close to Bryn. And though she admits Bryn was troubled, they were friends. They were the type of friends who would call each other and meet up for a drink or two. And she was close to Christine Zander as well, and was invited to join them that night, but declined because of prior plans. And she said she had plans with other friends. She went somewhere to upstate to visit them. And then when she came home on the train, some other friend met her at the train station and said that the, that Bryn and Phil were dead. Wow. I know. Can you imagine? Mm. After drinks with Christine, Bryn went over to her friend Ron Douglas's house, uh, which was about 10, 15. She spent a couple hours there drinking three more beers, according to the Daily News. And still, like two drinks, a half a beer, and then three more beers for me, I wouldn't. I would be drunk, but over like five or six hours, especially if you drink a lot. I mean, mm. come on. According to the Daily News, and I think it, the Daily News had was basing this on the biography, the 2014 biography. She complained to him about Phil and his distant ways, his constant pot smoking, and his preference to hang out with friends instead of her. When she left at 12:45 a.m., Douglas did not think she was too drunk to drive or even that drunk at all. A few hours later, Bring called. Ron Douglas. It was about 3:35 a.m. Or actually, I think it was more like 3:25 a.m. Not that it matters. Mm-mm. She told Ron that Phil wasn't home, but had left a note that he was going out for the night. She told Ron she didn't want to be alone and wanted to come back over to his house. He told her she couldn't come over because she couldn't leave her kids alone. He mm. told her to drink some milk and take some aspirin and go to sleep. Well, who was with the kids? She got home to a note from Phil, right? That's what she told. Him. Oh, okay. Phil was with the kids. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) But 20 minutes minutes later, the doorbell, well, the ghost of Phil, I guess, was babysitting. 20 minutes later, the doorbell started ringing and someone was banging on his door. It was Bryn dressed in pajamas with socks but no shoes. She was disheveled and smelled of alcohol. She told Douglas several times that she thought she had killed Phil. But she was wasted and rambling, so he didn't believe her. <laughs> Thought she probably had taken a bunch of pills, so he made sure she stayed awake, and then she started throwing up, and she threw up several times. See, now, if somebody, I don't give a shit how what their demeanor, said they thought they killed somebody. <laughs> no, me. I'd be the like, what are you talking is, about? The least I do is hey, check. Hey, that's what Phil Spector said, too. The least I do is check. I know. The, well, I think he was, I read the, I read this, like, it was an excerpt from the biography, and it was kind of like a minute by minute, and I think oh, okay. he was, like, really tired and irritated and didn't want to talk. Here. To yeah. her, so he was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Killed She's him, whatever. Him. Although, yes, I agree with you. After about two hours, she seemed to have sobered up. Bryn asked him to call her home, which he did several times, but no one answered. At one point, a 38 Smith & Wesson fell out of her handbag. <laughs> he took the gun away from her and checked it, and it seemed to have all the bullets. I wouldn't even know how to do that. No. He put it in a drawer in his kitchen. Finally, she seemed okay to drive home, but wanted him to follow her back to her house. He agreed to do it and got the gun out. He checked it again and realized it was missing bullets. He worried that maybe she had told him the truth about killing Phil. 
He put the gun in a plastic grocery bag and they drove back to her house. She drove and he drove behind her. Right. The book had to say he drove in his Lincoln, his black Lincoln, whatever. I'm like, this is shit. Um, While driving back to her house, Bryn called her friend Judy. She sobbed over the phone that she thought she had killed Phil. (laughs) After the call, Judy decided that she would head over to the house. When they got to the house, it was about 6 a.m., Doug followed Bryn into the house, bringing the bag with the gun with him. He followed Bryn into the bedroom where Phil lay dead on the bed. Doug Mm. realized at this point she was telling the truth. Yeah. Bryn started screaming and telling him that, I told you I killed Phil. (laughs) She then called her friends, Steve and Marcy, who lived three blocks away, and told them that she killed Phil. They got in their car. So she's fucking telling everybody. They got in their car and headed over to the house. So it was like like all these people converging on the house. So there were a lot of people coming over. Doug finally called 911. And the police showed up. He gave them the gun. And in the meantime, Bryn had locked herself in the bedroom with Phil's body. Some of the cops were trying to talk her into coming out while others were getting the children out of the house. According to the police report, a cop outside the house threw something at the window to break it and distract her. Although I don't see why that would help. Mm-hmm. It was called a ver- <laughs> in the police report. They said it was a, a diversionary tactic. And I'm like, just saying. <laughs> I don't understand. But whatever. They heard, they heard one gunshot and they broke into the room. They found her dead on the bed she was lying on her back on the bed holding the revolver it was a, a second revolver uh, yeah, the other she had one a lot of guns yes it, there was one in the bedroom the other one was outside the bedroom he had given it to the cop i think when the cop broke in he put it down on the ground because when the police report described the room it was outside in the hallway sitting on top of the bag so she was lying on her back the bullet that killed her lodged in the headboard above her head she had put the gun in her mm-hmm. mouth. Phil had been lying on his left side in a partial fetal position, left arm stretched out, right arm resting on his stomach. He had been shot three times, once in his arm and that went through his arm to his chest, once in the right side of his neck, and once in the middle of his forehead. Mm. According to the autopsy report, either the shot to the head or the one that went through his chest were fatal and were all done at close range about at the most 18 inches away. So he was either sleeping or pretending to be sleeping when he was shot. She was no probably one, like, you bitch! Bastard, I know you're not asleep. No one will ever really know <laughs> yeah. what happened, but my mm-hmm. feeling was there was some kind of argument yeah. that led up to it. I don't mean an argument. It was well, one-sided. She was probably worked up and yelling at him because you can't really argue with someone that's not arguing back. That's true. I've she tried. Was worked it's like down. one hand clapping. Yeah. He was shut down. She reached her breaking point, and unfortunately, there was a gun there. Yeah. And I'm not blaming him at all for his death. As I said, I can empathize with her feelings. I don't think I'd shoot someone, but I I know what it feels like to get. Well, she sounds like she was not pretty so much up. now, but when I was in my twenties, you know, yeah. dating someone that was kind of that way, passive, aggressive, and just trying to talk to somebody that doesn't want to listen. It's yeah. very very difficult when you're upset, and it just makes you more and upset. And they know it, and they manipulate it. It's a control thing, right? It's a control thing. They know by not engaging with you, they're gonna ratchet up your upsetness. And I and I've been in situations where I think the person actually gets some pleasure. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Out of that. I don't know why, because it's not pleasant for anyone. But, I know. You know. After their deaths. Makes them feel superior, I guess. Yeah. It does. After their deaths, their children went to live with Bryn's family in the Midwest, as was specified in, I think, in both of their wills. Bryn's brother was to be custodian of the estate. Phil's brother, John, says there were some unhappy family members on his side, but according to CBSLA, he said. Quote, Ma, we have to do the right thing here. These people did not kill Phil and they're good people. Hmm. 
He said he was trying to keep the families together and he forgave Bryn because she was on drugs and alcohol and didn't know what or why she was doing. Mm. What she was doing or why. Months after Phil's death, there was a tribute for Phil at the Paramount Theater in Hollywood. Jan Hooks gave a speech about her good friend. I found a transcript on Grantland.com, but I think there's also a film of her doing it on uh, YouTube, the speech. Her pet name for him was Sandy because Aww. of his hair color. Aww, isn't Here's that sweet? Part I think of, he had dark brown hair. Yeah, he did when he was younger, but he must have colored it. Here's part of what she said. My dear sweet Sandy, how I wish I could have one more dance with you. It was such an honor to have worked so closely with you. I had the great privilege of being your make-believe wife in so many incarnations. Mm. I was Hillary to your Bill, Ivana to your Donald, and even Beauty to your Beast. Today, in many ways, I feel like your make-believe widow. Aww. And the speech goes on and she says that no role was too small for him to put his all into and that he helped her with stage fright and just thinking of him still helps her and how they almost forgive Bryn. She ends by saying, I will continue to call on you and be inspired by your sweet and solid strength. And then someday when it's my turn to cross over, it's making me cry because I know she died. Mm-hmm. I just hope that my first dance will be with you. Aw, that'd be nice so if there actually yeah. was an afterlife or something. But I know. So that just... was my... So it was very tragic, and I forgot a lot about it. And, and tragic in a lot of ways. It's funny how people don't really talk much about it. No, though. they don't. They I don't. think because of well, the way he happened. died, it was sad. But I saw it, a picture of his daughter, though. She went to, I think it was the 40th anniversary or something. Of SNL. Yeah, she's blonde, pretty mm. girl. But the one thing about it, too, is it was a bad combination of a lot of things. Two personalities that didn't complement no. each other at all. No. And her, it's kind of sad because it sounds like, you know... She it, just seems, like, the, lost. You right. Know? Her, her search for identity. You wonder how people are like that, where they just can't figure out who they are and can't settle and can't find anything to do that makes them happy. I think it's or, almost, although it sounds kind of simplistic, but like a lack of confidence in yourself or, or a lack of thinking that you can do anything, so you're just kind of like floating along. Yeah, and, it's like she was just like, it sounds like she was just being buffeted through yeah. life by the winds. You know, and you feel like changing her name and the... And the I, I, I'm not surgery. to dwell on the changing her name, but to me, changing her name... Is a big deal. I mean, I wouldn't even do it if I got married. It, it, it seems, seems like people do it, like a lot of times when people do it. Sometimes maybe it's like just they that you never liked your name. But other people, can, yeah, you want to you want to change, you want to be somebody else. And then you're not. So yeah. you do something else to be somebody else. I certainly don't defend the fact that she shot him. No. But you just wish somebody earlier well, had stepped in either with them as a couple or with her with her, her obvious issues. Yeah. You know, I, it's so easy for people to dismiss, oh, she does drugs and she drinks and she's a pain in the ass, blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, I, you, I know you can't make an adult get help when they don't want. She went to rehab and But blah, it's blah, sad blah. because she was clearly unhappy yeah. and bored i mean to say the least but the other thing the factors in this whole this tragedy were were their personalities and the drug use on her side maybe even his maybe the pot smoking i mean mm-hmm. i mean yes he liked to sit around and smoke pot and that's his right to do he's rich you know mm-hmm. can do what he wants but he was doing it to exclude people yes. you know that he didn't want around. And she and so her drug use obviously just exacerbated her other issues. And then the fact that there were guns around when when people are fucked yep. up and upset. And I know people everybody has their different views on on gun ownership, but my feeling always is if there isn't a loaded gun around, maybe that death wouldn't have happened. 
And, think we could and have seen that like, in La- Lana Clark. Right. And none of these people, both Phil Spector and her, Bryn, nobody had a good reason to have loaded guns around. How can you have a loaded gun in your house when you have a nine-year-old or whatever? Don't ask me. And, you know, it just crazy and loaded guns and stuff don't And drugs well and together. alcohol. Maybe she should have dated Phil uh, Spector instead of <laughs> no. Phil Hartman. Then they probably both would have ended up dead. Uh. Also, too, one thing that frustrates me, and this is why I hate the whole concept of man caves, like on HGTV, <laughs> and you'll see where I'm going with this, is the man, like there's some right the man has to get away from his family. Yeah. Lots of times when a woman has kids, she's expected to deal with the family. Like, I heard, I remember several times, like on HGTV and shows, the guy would be talking about his man cave and the woman would have the kitchen. Yeah. And it's like, well, gee, that's not really fair. Or even if, even if it's the bedroom, it's not friggin' fair. I know. You know, it's that, this expectation that the man needs either figuratively or physically somewhere to go so he can distance himself from his annoying, bothersome family. To me, it translates to people feeling that they have the right to isolate themselves from their family. If you've got kids, if you've got a spouse and kids, it's both spouses' obligation to be as present as they possibly can. And if they do need time away, then both of them... Right. deserve to have right it's i mean maybe i sound idealistic and granted i'm not married you are a crazy I- in an ideal world you would want to be spending time together as a family the children mom and dad going and doing fun stuff and a lot of families actually do a lot of people i know yeah. do and it's easy to make fun of families that do everything together but it's nice well, everything together is a little creepy well i'm glad you reminded people of that yeah it? um and, and it's gonna it's 19 years ago just was, about now. Yeah, it was a few May days 20th. ago was the yeah. anniversary. Can't believe it's been that long, but it's a sad. A lesson to Very everybody. Because children are adults now. Deal with your crazy, damn it. <sighs> Anyways, so. So, I guess we're going to do recommendations. Yeah, no ask a lawyer again. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. what are we going to talk about? Well, we both watched The Keepers. Yeah. And can we talk about it? Since yes. I think it's new enough that we don't necessarily want to We're not spoil. spoiling it. And plus, I didn't finish the last, like, 40 minutes. So, it's a seven-part documentary that's on Netflix. And it starts out as you think it's a look at the murder, and it is, of this nun in 1969 in Baltimore. But it turns out it's actually about the church Ugh. sex abuse shit and one of the biggest issues with that whole thing which i think some people don't understand i don't want to get into religion and um people's criticisms of how this has been handled over the past 15 or years or whatever since the spotlight stuff started but one of the biggest crimes of that was how the church is this giant institution knew it was going on and would take priests and just move them from one place or another and cover it up Yes. And this makes it clear and disgusting and oh, it's just it horrible detail. It's almost unbelievable what happened in this all-girls high school with <sighs> the priest who was the chaplain and counselor 
you know, with a lot more power than you would think a chaplain and counselor would have at a high school. But, but you know, as we were gr- we grew up, we went to Catholic school. We did. And the priest in our he school... He was the god. Yes. They were not involved with the school. No. But they would come at because the school... When the, he walked into the yes. classroom, you stood up yes. and everybody said in yes. unison, Good morning, And the Father nuns Burn. fawned over him. Yes, in a sick way. Yeah. Even as a child, I thought it was a I little... Th- I was annoyed by it. I mean, I didn't have any priests. No. In my grade school, both the priests seemed fine. I never heard yeah, anything. I don't think we went to... Never heard anything. The school, Catholic school we went to in Ohio, and then here in Maine... But there was in, in, one in the other Catholic school Yeah, they had to stop naming... They had named a bridge after him in Augusta, and my they neighbor had to rename goes, the bridge. It was one of my neighbors and, um, used to uh, go to school at that school with the father. Yeah. Was that St. Augustine that yeah. he was at? Yeah. And he said... Said, Father Curran, I think. He said he, he abused some boys in my class, but not me. I guess I wasn't cute enough. <laughs> I'm I, sorry. We can joke yeah. about We're it. Just, uh, uh, yeah, that was, too that was, I know that was in bad taste. But in any case, one of the focuses of this documentary are these two women who were students of the nun in 1969. Neither of them were abused. Neither of them knew the abuse was going on. But they decided, because the police didn't seem too interested in ever solving this case, after the initial excitement about it, that they were going to find out what yeah, happened. because they they wanted, yeah, they loved her. I mean, everyone loved her. I think sometimes in, like, a, a all-girls school, I don't know if it's the same with boys, but it seems like it, there can be very intense emotions toward your teachers. Like, it seems like a Especially lot of girls... Especially with kids like, that age. Yeah. You know, and you're... she was a young, she was in her late 20s. She was a novice. She wasn't... Uh, she hadn't taken her final vows. She hadn't taken her final vows yet. And they called her Kathy, Sister Kathy or yeah. Kathy. And they loved her. Everyone that they talked to thought she was a wonderful teacher. And she... And, it's, and I like the way this documentary kind of unfolds information mm-hmm. as it goes along in a way... You know, it doesn't just state all the obvious at yes. the beginning, and the way it unfolds helps you understand what's going I think on. Do, I think it's a it's a good as a documentary. I like Tower better the way they did it, but they do a good job. There's a lot of interviews. They don't really have reenactments, but they do have some like kind of reenactments. Kind that of are just weird. little black and white. Yeah, you know, like a blonde girl walking down the hall stuff. And they do this little thing, and it's not a big deal, but it's just one thing that bugs me when I'm watching documentaries where they focus on like if someone's making. Tea, they focus on the kettle yeah. and the tea bag and her putting the tea bag in the yeah. tea. <laughs> and I'm like, just let's get on with whatever the fuck is going on here. Yeah. And I think it almost starts out with one of those types of things. And I'm yeah. like, oh, come on. Am I going to be watching, like, you know, eight hours of, the, of somebody <laughs> putting a tea it, bag but in it? I was riveted. It I is had good. To you, have to pay, it. you have to pay attention because it doesn't spell everything out for you, and there's a lot going on. It's easy to lose a thread mm-hmm. when you're when there's so many different characters, yes. and you're switching back and forth in time, and there's nuances to it. I don't think you have to be have a Catholic background no. to understand. Like I don't think you need to have a Catholic background to understand how fucked up. One of the young women who was abused, I would say the most, sounds like the most brutally abused one. She was one of ten kids. She had three boys older than her, three boys younger. So she didn't really have in her family any, like, closeness, I don't think. You know, where you can talk with people. Like a sister, yeah. But she was abused by an uncle who had other men. And this isn't a spoiler, (laughs) but other men, he had sex with her and stuff. And her parents obviously didn't know. But she went to confession And the priest, not the big abuser, but his, I think his wingman, you might want to call him, told her, well, I don't know if we can forgive you for that. 
And, you know, that's not what confession's all about. In fact, the thing that struck me, and things were different even though that was around the time they were a little bit older than us, but their parents, your parents would not, if you went home and complained about a priest or a nun, and your parents were raised in the Catholic Church and were religious, they were not listening to You wouldn't I mean, get very far. You wouldn't get very, I mean, not even saying, like, the priest sexually abused me. I'm just saying, you know, sister slapped me today. Or, and or they'd be s- like, well, you even, must have done something to deserve sister, it. Or sister Alice doesn't like me. They'd you know, like, she treats me different than the other girls. You know, they'd just be like, well, yeah. whatever. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is, and I remember being taught this in religious cl- religion class, that the priest is a conduit to God. And that is why you have that screen. They don't see who you are because even though half the time the they would know. In the confessional, if you've never been to confession as a Catholic, and I don't think they still do it the same. I haven't been to church You since. can have open ones, no. but they had open ones. But then. they used to have, you would go in, there's a screen that you can't see who each other are because he's not supposed to know. It doesn't matter to him who you are. He is not the person Allegedly. you're... Com- yeah. He's not the person you're confessing to. You are confessing to God, but he is the conduit because God can't be down here as a person, apparently. I don't really, you know, it never made much sense to me. It never made sense to me either. But, But anyways, this priest asked her who she was and he opened the screen so he could see her face. Yes. And that I'm not faulting her for saying, she hey, you're not supposed right. to do it. it. Right. Well, she was like 14. Well, you know what I mean. But um, because she wouldn't have been, even been confessing that, except for that she felt like she was she at fault so- somehow. Well, they know, because like all abusers, they know they who's right easy, in on that. Yeah. who is easy to abuse, who's easy to manipulate, who's vulnerable, and for different reasons, because then there's a guy later who went to a different school that Father Maskell was at before he went to this girl's high school. And this boy wasn't necessarily vulnerable in a lot of ways, but the priest fed his ego. Yeah. The boy was an altar boy, and the priest, he kept, he keeps saying, I was the golden boy, yeah. I was the golden boy. So the priest abused him and gave him a lot of perks and stuff, and he was just riding and high. That's what but he do. made the mistake, because he was a kid with some confidence and stuff, of telling his friends, stay away from Father Maskell. Father Maskell found out, and all of a sudden, the kid was shit. Mm. But back then, it was absolute authority, and you didn't question no. that authority. No. That's and you didn't feel like, I don't think that they felt like there was anyone they could go to, because the nuns at the, the girls' school, I'm sure most of them, the teachers, including the principal, deferred to Father Maskell. Yes. Because he was the man, and he was the You'd priest. You'd been in trouble if you were saying And bad. this nun, Sister Kathy, she questioned him. Some of the girls confided in her, and she said, I'll t- I'm going to take care of this. Yeah, and then all of a sudden and she And then she killed. died. Yeah. So that is a very, it, it, it's good. Right. But I found it depressing yeah, that these poor very... girls, and these women are brave because anyone that has to come forward in a very Catholic community, or anybody, this is one specific example, but anyone that's been abused that way, in whatever the community, say it's a favorite coach, or, or, right. or, or somebody, and, and or, or um, Cosby. Well, oh yeah, yes. Immediately, people start attacking you. Right. And people in the, both in the documentary and, you know, people in real life, well, why didn't they say something? I would say something. People would say something. And this was 1969. And these were young girl, young women in a Catholic school. And it was a priest. Nowadays, grown women are abused and don't say anything. And anyone who says, by priests. Oh, I would, or by or any, but what? No, yeah. by anyone. My point is there are grown women 
who are raped or sexually abused who don't go forward because they know the fucking shit they're going to yes. have to take for it. Even in I've said that before. I would probably wouldn't. Even in 2017, and anyone who faults, and of course the church used that against, well, why didn't they come forward? Why didn't they say anything? And then, of course, made it very hard, and I don't want to go into, I don't want to mess up the story for people who are going to watch it. But tiny, tiny, tiny minority, even in 2017, of women, grown women, who are sexually abused or assaulted report it. And so you can imagine teenagers in 1969 and, of course, they're the most vulnerable ones. They're the ones the priests picked out to do this to because he knew that he could manipulate yes. them. They're not going to do it. And it's very disturbing. There's a part later in the show about what's happened in Maryland as far as them wanting to lift the statute of limitations. And, I again, so people will watch. I don't want to go on. But it's really disheartening. Mm. And it's really disheartening the connections between the church and the police and the politicians. It, it made me think of the wire. Well, <laughs> and the know, thing is, too. that's the thing, too, is that's the other thing that these, their children, and that's the other thing they were up against. There was no one they could go, that they felt they could go to because it was made clear to them that they had nowhere to go. And it's, to tell it's scary. I think everyone yes, should watch it. I think it. everyone should watch it, and I think it'll be enlightening for people. It, it'll, it's difficult, though. It is difficult. And it's well done. And the trigger warning. I was going to mm -hmm. ask you about trigger warnings we never have them and i don't think we should because no. of what our life is a trigger warning well i was thinking when you have a true crime show it's always gonna it's a built-in yeah, trigger warning i don't mean to trivialize people who have who have issues from things that have happened to them and that type of thing but there comes a point in your life when you have to look out for yourself that you have to make decisions for yourself on what you're going to watch and listen to and read and look at that you have a comfort level with. We can't accommodate all the shit that people may have in their well, heads. Well, I feel like if I, for instance, am allergic to peanut, I'm not going to go down the aisle with the peanut fresh roasted peanuts. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you have something in your past like a violent crime and, and you can't hear anything that might remind you of that, you probably wouldn't be listening to what... A, a true crime yes, podcast. Yes, that's true. So I don't know if, and if we need to have trigger No, I don't warnings. think we need to have trigger warnings. I was just noticing that because some podcasts I listen to have Do them. they? I, I just don't think it's necessary. No. I mean, I'm not... I, yeah, like you said, I don't want to, like... I don't... I, I'm not... Diminish again, what I'm not diminishing what somebody's been through, trivializing it. But I think we're also in danger of creating a world, and I don't mean you and me, I mean uh, where people expect to have the soft cotton coating around them wherever they go, and it makes people much less able to deal with surprises and the world around them. And what you need is to make decisions for yourself about where you want to be and what you want to look at and what you want to listen to and how to turn the volume off or to turn the channel or to turn the computer off. You learn to discern. And I'm not comparing learning to discern between things that are maybe too mature for you or whatever, between things that are going to trigger emotional or psychological responses in someone. But the whole world can't be uh, uh, a safe yeah. zone. When Liz and I were at the Grand Canyon, there was a woman, you know, we were out here looking saying, they really need a fence here. And I'm thinking, you can't put a fucking fence around the entire Grand Canyon and Donald Trump it's did. a fucking 
giant drop-off. You don't need a fence to tell you to not go fall (laughs) off the drop-off. And again, I can't say enough that I'm not demeaning people who need trigger warnings, who need to be careful in the world. But what I'm saying is there's personal responsibility for understanding what kind of world you're going to live in. And the world doesn't care about you. The world isn't looking out for you. And if you expect it all the time, everybody's much better off, kids, adults, learning how to react to things that threaten them rather than being told nothing's ever going to threaten you. Yes. And that goes for kids walking to school, talking to strangers, right up to to people who want to go, who want to listen to podcasts. Well, I think one of the things that probably was good growing up for both of us as part of our personality, I don't think it was I don't know if it's nature versus or nurture, but I've always been very cynical and skeptical of things, mm. and so have you. And me that too. actually yeah. is a good way to be when you're a kid. Even when I was a kid, I was that way. Yeah, me too. I didn't believe Let's anything not start anyone on the told Santa me. Claus thing. No, but I'm talking about like if a stranger. Yeah, said something to me. I well, mom tells a story of our uncle Jack, who's a priest, and um, not he's a very good, wonderful priest. Yes, he is. And when Liz and I were walking home from Our Lady of Lords, and I must have been in kindergarten, and she must have been in first grade, he was driving by on the way to mom and dad's, and pulled up to give us a ride, and we wouldn't get in the car with him. Ah, yeah, good girl. <laughs> I know. See, Even though he was our uncle and he was a priest. I've always been that way, And that way, would have though. been in the late 60s. I've always so, been... The mid-60s. I've always been like, you know, and, you know, maybe that well, gets annoying to some fact, people. we talk about confession. I was telling you before we started recording today, in third grade or whatever the grade is, we had to do... Com- we had to... To confession, it's a sacrament you do before you can do first communion. So maybe it was early grade, probably. But I asked the nun. This was, I think, the same nun I got into the whole Tom Dooley thing with, which is a story for another day. Mm. But I asked the nun, why, if God sees everything and forgives everything, why did we have to go to confession? And of course, I got in trouble. She thought I was being a smart ass. <laughs> I was just asking a question. But they didn't true. like you asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. They don't. Anyways, I guess we should wrap so it up. So we because should wrap it up because it's time to wrap it up. I'll take it. Is okay. So so if you have any responses to any of this, you can email us at crime and stuff on uh, at crime and stuff at gmail dot com or tweet at or us. tweet at us crime and stuff Facebook message Instagram Instagram now for we put some photos and stuff on there that and that's crime and stuff as well that we don't put in other places so you can check those out there's also a contact form on our website yeah on our website you can find everything you need to know actually you can find everything you need to know on our website you can donate you can subscribe we have a subscribe page where so whatever format you're using you can subscribe to the podcast yes and please do yeah and i just on apple podcast yeah i think we're calling it that we're we're at the lower echelon so we haven't gotten the memo yet on that and also my podcast notes from a cranky editor it was supposed to drop last week but it's been delayed by technical if you're a writer type of person even if you're not i i would like to think that anyone who wants to communicate each episode's only five to ten minutes i discuss (laughs) rules like you know the difference between that and which it's mm-hmm. just one thing per podcast but other like things that really piss me off like the use of the phrase good samaritan or go missing drive me nuts yeah, i said go missing last time did i yes yeah. yeah, so, well it drives me nuts it's just me <laughs> five to ten minutes but it hasn't dropped yet it's just about all set but it's just something to look out for and there will be a link on our website to that too and we're gonna have a new 
sorry. Right. The uh, my groovy allergies. Tube. The groovy tube. I don't know if we have, and we have a website, Groovy Tube Podcast. You can check out. We don't have any podcasts yet. We don't, though. Right. The episodes soon. won't be up till the end of the month. Yeah. But the we'll our website you know. is up, so you can take a look at what we're doing. We're yeah. kind of proud of it. Becky, Rebecca, Becky is our Never. logo designer. She designed my Cranky Editor logo. She designed our Crime and Stuff yeah, logo. Yeah, and just like and, Bill Hartman. Right, and she designed our Groovy Tube logo. Yeah, so that, so I successful. hope you're not destined to be shopped by some crazy yeah, nut. Yeah, probably not. And I guess that's all. Okay, goodbye. See you next week. Can I just interrupt a minute? Were you going to say, like, who he is for like younger viewers who may never have heard of him. Ah, uh, yes. I just want to make sure. Okay. It's the flow of my okay, story. Okay, okay, I'm just asking. I I understand the narrative. Yes, I it's just the want narrative. To make sure. Yes, I have faith. I have it covered. All right, and you can cut that out so people don't get upset. People, I know they'll think we're fighting.